In the world of sports performance, although strength is certainly a key factor, the focus has shifted much more towards that of speed building and development than an absolute priority towards a lifting one at max. In that search for speed, it's important to consider that not all forms of speed are the same. For example, doing a squat quickly certainly offers a high-speed stimulus, but it is not the same high-speed stimulus as maximally throwing, maximally sprinting, maximally cutting, or jumping. The thing with sport and sport movement, as opposed to things that are happening in more of a in-place, you could say, weight room type setting, is that sport is very rotational and angular in nature. There is a lot of angular momentum and collisions going on within sport. And in really trying to hit the fullness of speed training, I think that it's really important to not only understand those rotational elements of high-speed sport movement, but also understand how to, tra- how to engage with them in a training setting. To help us with those concepts, we have Dr. John Cronin and Joe Delsetti on the show today. John Cronin is a sports scientist with a physical education and coaching background. John has published over 400 peer-reviewed papers on speed, power, and strength training, and he's also had the opportunity to train and work with a variety of athletes and teams along the way. Joe Dolcetti has had a 35-year career in high-performance sport training. He has been across the globe working with a variety of teams and programs, and as an inventor, he has developed and launched Exogen, which is an advanced wearable resistance training system. Through his work as a coach and with Exogen, Joe has worked with many of the world's top sporting programs, including the NBA, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball, world-class track and field athletes, and so many others. On the show today, John and Joe will get into their journey of high-velocity resistance training. We'll cover a little bit of the history of wearable resistance, such as some of the more, you could call them old school things like weighted vests and ankle weights. We'll be talking about some of the pros and cons of those elements. We'll also be getting into the high velocity resistance element of sprint sleds. And from there, we'll be talking about advancements in wearable resistance, how very light weights can be used to drive angular momentum and create really strong overloads in athletes in very sport-specific motions. We'll be talking about the evolution of the exogen wearable resistance system. We'll be talking about training more stance phase-oriented elements versus training things that happen in the air. And overall, really fill in that fullness of the force velocity curve through the awareness and training of that high-speed angular element in sports performance training. Before we get to the episode today, I wanted to highlight a sponsor of the show, which is Lost Empire Herbs. As CEO of Lost Empire, Logan Christopher would say, these aren't your grandpa's herbs. This is not Jinko Biloba at the drugstore. These are herbs with a tremendous potential for your strength, energy, vitality, and well-being. I've been a user of Lost Empire products for just about four years now. I absolutely love them. And if you want to check out my favorite herbs as well as get 15% off your order, then you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. If you want to grab a free trial order of pine pollen with just a modest cost of shipping, you can head to justflypinepollen.com. It's an awesome company and I hope you get a chance to check them out. That being said, let's get to episode 356 with John Cronin and Joe Dulcetti. John, Joe, welcome to the show. Great to have you guys here. Um, and I also, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but this may set a podcast record for the greatest triangle distance between myself and the two guests. So, may, I don't know if we can calculate that up. But anyways, it's great, it's great wow. to have you guys here. Yeah, that's right. Because you've got Asia, North America, and sort of Oceania down there in New Zealand. Yeah, we're, we're covering a pretty wide area. I, I was kind of waiting for the 
like the delay somewhere to come in with this conversation, but it's all the internet is serving us really well today. So I, th- I think it'll hold. And uh, you know, I'm really excited for our chat here. That delay will come from the New Zealand side. You wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Actually, they're the, they're the guys that are ahead of everybody right now. So I did the scene on that one. <laughs> it's great to be here, Joel and JC. It's always a pleasure uh, getting some time with you, my friend. Yeah, uh, and that's a big ditto from me, guys. I'm looking forward to the the podcast and learning. Most probably, I'll be doing a lot of learning here. I think so. Let's rip into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, John, I I think we were talking for a minute beforehand. I think with the the distance, I think last time we tried to do this a long time ago, and that something messed up from a connection perspective. So I'm so glad we're out loud and clear now, and we can we can get Joe here as well. And so. The first question that I have for you guys, and, and both of you guys uh, on this one, is tell me a little bit about each of your story with external resistance training. So, sleds, uh, you know, I, like for me, like I had these like thigh power trim thigh sleeves that Don Beebe endorsed when I was like 16. I was using those as like a belt and these like thigh weights. And, you know, I, I, oh yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. I think I used that before I used a sled, to be honest. But uh, yeah, curious what you, with each of you guys' journeys on resistance training and how it has led you to where you are now. JC, go ahead. You've, you, you, you've got, you, you, you made some of your kit in, back in the day. Yeah, I did, actually. Like I've, I've been always a big fan of speed. I was, uh, when I played sport, I was uh, a wing in rugby. And typically, you need to be fast uh, as a wing in rugby. And uh, I needed to be faster. I wasn't that fast, so I was always searching for something to make me faster. In those days, it was just about lifting weights. So as I actually, you know, matured and got out of sport and became an S and C, I found there was other ways to get people quicker. And so my real interest happened around the late nineteen nineties, where I grabbed a, a master's student by the name of Keir Hansen, and we started having a look at vest loading versus sled towing, and. Uh, at that time, there wasn't too much product on the market, so I made my own vests, and the, I put fishing tackle in the in the vest pockets, and you know that's how I overloaded it. But it was, it was really dangerous, to be quite honest. It bounced all over the place and just about knocked you out when you started uh, running at top speeds. But nonetheless, it, w- it was where my sort of passion began, and you know, comparing different types of uh, resistance sprint training, that sort of. Went into a hiatus for a little while until I met a guy by the name of Matt Cross and we looked at vest loading again in around about 2009, 2010 and really got inside that and sort of dispelled that myth of, uh, you know, having to load less than 10%. We, mm. we found some really interesting stuff and the, the really heavier stuff and, uh, with the vest, especially in terms of the vertical ground reaction forces. It was You really needed... Heavy loads overload the vertical ground reaction forces, something like in the vicinity of 20% of your body mass. So that was really neat unpacking that. Then 2014, came across this guy in Malaysia, Joe, and he came up and showed me this product. And, uh, and it had a very beautiful vest to it that you could have fixed the weights. But at that time, you know, the, the vest part of it had lost its sort of interest for me and in what really sort of picked my interest was the limb loading and uh and that's where we've gone for the last six eight years of research un- unpacking that that limb loading and it it's been just something that's just about given every day it's it's been very very fascinating and you know we've 
quite happily, you know, we started off with very little research in that area. We've most probably put over 30 peer-reviewed publications into that area and really put the science behind this and to really validate it. So really ha- happy with our our research in this area and how we've contributed to the area. And But I feel like there's a lot, lot to be done still. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of idea of the history. Yeah, Joe, yeah, how about yourself? And at, well, you know, it's funny. I keep telling people, I mean, when it comes to the application of wearable resistance from a practical side, there's probably not many people in the world that know more about that than me. But when it comes to the science, and that's only because I created the kit and spent 20 years at some level working through it and with it. But when it comes to the science, you know, JC probably understands more about weight in movement than anybody on the planet. And that's one of the and that, that JC, I didn't realize that it had been that long. It was 2014, 2015 when you were out here in Malaysia speaking at that conference, yeah. remember? Yeah. And then we we went out for a beer after that, and you were you looked at those weights and you and you you looked at me straight up and you said, Do you guys have a research partner? And I said, We're looking at one right now. You know, we shook yeah. on it. And um, yeah, like there's yeah. dozens of papers. And and I remember you talking me through the need and the process that we had to approach to start understanding it. And that was and because there was there was no precedent, so you asked, uh, "What's our experience with some level of like wearable or in, you know trying to inter- internalize load?" Like everybody, I used everything else we had. Right? We, I remember the last loading experience I really remember was my own rugby. You know, I played fairly high level sevens rugby out here in Asia, throughout the Asia Pacific region, Australia, New Zealand, and I was training on the track with. I used ankle weights a lot. And I was I was a big strong wing, I, like JC, a, a fast guy. I was 95, 96 kilos, you know, almost 220 pounds. So the ankle weights I could handle the load, but they were they were terrible on you, right? But it wasn't that it wasn't my own training that that sort of triggered that for me. It was as I tell the story a lot. I was preparing a sprinter, a group of sprinters for the Athens Olympics in 2004, and we were pulling sleds on the track. And the queuing battle between a coach and an athlete who's pulling a sled while trying to keep mechanics, you know, it's a, it's a terrible process. And I remember just, I literally was looking at that sprinter and seeing that weight on the sled. And I thought, if I could move all that weight off that sled and wrap it on those Nike tights that he's wearing on his legs, one, this whole conversation would end. And I remember I went, I went online and, and this is early 2000s and you know, literally 20 years ago now. And Back then, when online was new, but there was nothing. And that, that those those thigh loads was one of the very first things I saw. And I remember I ordered a pair or found a pair and we tried them out. And, you know, it was all the same kind of thing. Weight training has to be progressive. The same rules that apply with light load have to apply, a heavy load have to apply with light load. So there was lots of people in versions of a load you can put on the body, like an ankle weight, a wrist weight, thigh load, a weighted vest. But where's the progressions gone? You know, that my first thought is it's not built by somebody with a greater sort of complexity to meet the needs of the laws of training. So, you know, after battling with all that stuff and knowing it had value, right? I mean, everything has value. The question is, what's the right tool for the job at the time? I started literally trying to glue weight on the body. And then I remember meeting Nick Winkleman out there at Exos when he invited me into come uh, introduce exogen to them. And he said it sort of best. He said, you know, Joe, like JC, like yourself, every coach in the world has tried to figure out how to glue weight on the body. He said, and now you figured it out. 
But he said, and this is the best part. And they said, but it's going to take us 20 years to figure out even how to start using it. And this is the one thing I always liked about Nick is he really understood deeply where we were going. And like JC said, we've been working on this six or seven years where I'm 20 years into this almost, but the market and the overall environment, this is new. And we're still in the first 10 years of the 20 year window. He talked about learning how to use it because the moment I, I, I posted this up the other day and I was saying, if you want to make an exercise hard, you add weight. If you want to train smart, you add weight in the right place. And that's something we don't understand. Think about what we all chatted about a minute ago before we started on here. Internal loading, external loading, tweaking this movement. And, you know, I teach this course around the world now and work with many of the best speed programs in the world right now. And it's the same conversation. Where would I put the load? How do I do that? You know, we just never had this option. And I think to me, that was the most exciting thing is that where you put load with, with in, in today's mindset is as important and in many cases more important than how much load you're putting so it's been fascinating but yeah i you know we did that we ran the gamut and the one i gotta say the one kid i'm still confused by is the parachute i tried them but <laughs> man i just thought these are better for jumping out of an airplane <laughs> that's yeah that's actually the one thing i've, I've never used of all the yeah, yeah that little yeah. that speed power trim in the you know i think it was the I late 90s it. yeah and, but i never yeah i never used the parachute of all things so i kind of almost want to just for the just for the sheer sake of doing it i don't know <laughs> um you know as you were talking there joe you, you said something interesting and because i, I do want to cover for at least the first part of this podcast i do want to cover some of the other forms of resistance training to, to kind of show where we've been and then where things are going and also just to speak on some of the advantages and then the drawbacks of some of these things because one of the first things that i had ever heard um this was when i was 16 and i was i was i had done all the this was like the, my i guess you could call it like the jump program phase of my life although i did have the power trim uh the the speed the thigh weights and so i was interested in speed yeah. too but i wanted to dunk you know do windmill dunks and stuff more than anything and the program I got, uh, the training program I had got, well, I got like the air alert program that's like, you know, a million, not a million, but like do 200 squat jumps. All right, next week do 250. And it's like <laughs> the volume progression. And then after that, and after kind of zeroing out the results I was getting doing something like that, I got a program based off depth jumping called the science of jumping. And it was talking about like using weighted vests in, in jump training. And it had said, why would you use a weighted vest when if you just get on a box and drop and then do a depth jump or whatever, now the load is, you have increased the load because of gravity, but now it is equally and evenly distributed throughout your whole body. And I remember that kind of biased me against weight vests for a long time. And it's not that I don't, I, I mean, I have a weight vest. I, I've used it, I use it as a track coach, but it is interesting doing that. The only thing I ever really used it for, for the most part was bounding, like as a, just a different way to do bounding. And even when I used it, it was interesting. And John, I was going to circle back with you. You had said something about it being very difficult to actually increase the vertical force when you have a weighted vest on. I, and I know just bounding, it was interesting. It was almost like you'd hit and then there was like this little mini leg and then the whole vest goes ka-chunk if anyone's ever done vest bounding before. And again, I still, it's still, regardless, you still got a cool potentiation effect out of it. You still could do you know, however much bound with the vest, take it off. Oh, this feels amazing, you know be it maybe you, you rid yourself of a suboptimal biomechanical stimulus 
Yes, but you also, you know, had to work a little bit harder when you did have the vest on. You're walking around with it. I mean, you have like the hypergravity thing too, where people walk around for a couple of weeks with a weighted vest and just walk with it and they don't actually, or maybe they do train with it. But anyways, what I was trying to get at was a little bit more into the weighted vest and the research you were doing there and the vertical force, because maybe we go, maybe this podcast does go from vertical force into the angular. I think we almost start with that more basic, like, all right, you know, 2D, very simple things, and then we branch like a tree a little bit. And so I'm just curious a little bit more about some of that research you did there, John. Yeah, okay. So and we can look at it from jumps and we can look at from running, okay? And what, you, what you'll find, if you get somebody to jump and then land on a force plate, the, the vertical ground reaction forces are X. If you put the the vest on, and you can think about this in running terms too, if you put the vest on and you get them to jump, well, they don't jump as high. And as a result, the vertical ground reaction forces will stay pretty much the same because your vertical ground reaction forces are not only made up of mass, but acceleration due to gravity working on that mass. And so if you're jumping higher, therefore you'll be coming down harder and therefore your vertical ground reaction forces, as I say, are X. But if you put that mass on, you don't jump as high. And as a result, you know, mm. the, the center of mass displacement is compromised and therefore the effect of gravity is less. And they stay pretty much the same. And so that's what we found with jumps. We put the, the we thought that the jump, the putting the vest on would be a great jump stimulus. And we didn't find that at all. Okay, because a, a vertical great ground reaction force stimulus. Uh, or an eccentric stimulus because of that that uh, combination of gravity plus mass. If you actually did drop jumps from a standardized height and put additional vest mass on, then the eccentric and mm. the, the braking forces would increase. Okay, but it's that you know self-propelled jumping or self-propelled gait, and we found exactly the same uh, with running with the vest it was we i think we had around about 10 percent body mass or something like that and we saw no real difference in the vertical ground reaction forces when you were running it wasn't up to until we got up to around about 20 percent uh body mass that we saw some significant differences uh with vertical ground reaction forces at max velocity but not during acceleration uh, and the vest gave absolutely nothing in terms of horizontal force production. Okay, so mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense, Joel. But yeah, 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 it makes per- it makes perfect sense, and, and it definitely does too with like the horizontal. Because like I was saying, even with the bounding, like you feel your foot hit, and then you feel this vertical kachunk, <laughs> and there's not really there's not an angular overload, but that that makes perfect sense in the sense that you do put the vest on and you're bounding with it, and it is a vertical load but you aren't going as high now your movement is you're not you're basically not going as fast or as high so the vertical force that you would create if you didn't have a vest you know it's basically the same thing but then it makes sense if you actually put the vest on and dropped off a box well now of course it would be but i feel like that in itself though too i also think about extremities like where is the loading happening and just like the weight room I'm i'm a big believer a lot of people get in the gym and what gets overloaded a lot is like the trunk the hips, the spinal erectors, which is, you know, it's a good thing. But I think that can easily come at the expense of the link into the feet and the lower legs. And I think about with a vest, I've felt like, I don't know, on a level, like you can get 
you have more mass affixed to your trunk now in almost like a like a like a shotgun like it's like okay here's all this general mass attached to your trunk but the nuance of all the things happening at the lower leg the foot the ankle I and mean, even the hip too i guess you could say it makes sense to me that that would not be as easy to overload and i was going to ask as well what your thoughts were with it seems to me like a sled would be far superior. If you're going you're gonna to use one or the other when it comes to speed, a sled is going to be a way better deal. I'm curious, you, did you research like comparing those, those effects or anything like that or have anything else on that? Yeah, we, we did. And, you know, like the, the hypothesis was that the, the, the vest loading would be greater for vertical eccentric strength, you know, and if you've got that ability to break the downward momentum, therefore, yeah, your uh, foot contacts would be shorter and therefore stride frequency would be greater and then, you know, stride length and stride frequency make up speed. So, but to a degree, you know, putting more load on the vest is not going to actually make that that occur. So that was one of those sort of things that you write. I write things in published in 2014, then you have these light bulb moments where you actually sort of go, oh, jeepers, what I wrote way, way back then is not quite correct now. And, uh, and that's what I always say to people. Let's what I tell you today is can be something completely do, you know, different tomorrow because mm. I'm learning all the time. There's new research coming out all the time, and certainly with what we've done in this uh, wearable resistance area, it, there's been a few, you know, a lot of light bulb moments. Yeah. So, yeah, as you can ex- imagine, they're very different kinematics. The vest compared to the sled, the sled more of that anterior lean you're going to get, more of the feet underneath the body. We did a great PhD with Mike Carhill in 2019 where we looked at the uh, sled pull versus sled push and, you know, velocity decrement. And you, know, you just get a lot more horizontal force production with the sleds and and uh, there's a lot of good stuff that happens with sled work. But uh, the biggest thing that will, you know, one of the biggest light bulb moments again for us was in Japan, where we were actually getting the with Ryu Nagahara's lab, where we had the limb loading in play, and we actually got the athletes to run 50 meters only with 2% body mass. And we, at the end of that 50 meters, you know, we asked the athletes, how much harder was that? And they said that was around about 30 to 35% harder. And mm. we had a look at the ground reaction forces, the vertical ground reaction forces, and it's as you would expect, we only made them one or two percent heavier. Mm. So the vertical ground reaction forces were only one or two percent greater. Then mm. you know, then the, the the light bulb moment was well. The question was asked: How can it be one to two percent greater when they're at the their perceived exertion was thirty to thirty five percent greater? And that was a real light bulb moment too, wasn't it, Joe? When we actually yeah. Uh, what you're doing Absolutely. in the air, what you're doing in the air is really, really important, mm-hmm. and it's it's providing quite a resistive overload with that one or two percent on your calf or your thighs, and that's something that you don't get with the sled, okay? And so that's I'm all over the place a little bit, Joel, that's but okay. you know, and I've, trans, and I've trans, trans, transgressed into the limb loading already, but in the horizontal, but mm-hmm. but no, I'm still t- talking vertical there. And just great for overloading the stance phase of the sleds, but the airborne phase, it's it goes missing, goes missing in action. Mm. Yeah, that was. Um, uh, can I can I oh, jump yeah, in on absolutely. that? Uh, just because that was a critical point for us in the research, and I remember this, and I remember JC you, when we started those studies. I kept saying, whatever happens, you guys, 
get the subjective data. Ask these guys. Remember the questionnaire? I kept sending that questionnaire and saying, because we were seeing that even when that little trial with Portia, remember? She did one 40 meter half run and she comes back and she's like, that was 40% harder, you know? And Portia was uh, one of the elite uh, track athletes there in New Zealand when we had a little little uh, trial day down there. And, and I, it was the same thing we were seeing from everybody is the basic premise was, man, this is a lot harder than it looks. And we're talking a few hundred grams, you know, maybe a kilo. And so, and I remember JC saying, yeah, man, we're just, you know, we're not seeing the data isn't sort of relating to what they're having. But man, everybody tells you things like, I feel faster, I'm stronger, it's harder. And it was when the, the light bulb moment was exactly that. And this is important because you asked a little of the history too, you know, people have always thought about, we, we got stuck on the ground contact point. And all our tools up to now basically work at the point of ground contact. Yes. So a sled is only working on the body during ground contact. It is doing nothing in the air, a 1080. Uh, and then again, these are all great products. I just, I just had a nice reach out with the guy who created 1080. And, you know, it's a, it's a tool that everybody's using and it has a lot of value also. Uh, weighted vests, any sort of externalized load is working at the point of ground contact. But if you're a sprint coach, 90% of your work is happening what they're doing in the air. Mm -hmm. And like Dennis, you know, one of our partners, Dennis Mitchell there was maybe the fastest speed cohort in the world. He says for him, it's in, you know, he calls it airtime management. And he said the difference between the elites, he said, man, Joe, most of these people all put about the same kind of stuff into the ground, but what they're doing in the air is what separates them. And so as JC said, the difference with wearable resistance is it's there when you touch and then it's there through your recovery phase. So you're lifting and moving that load through the entire angular cycle and the athlete's having that experience. And so all of a sudden, so they're going out and that load is not just working at dot, 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 you know, at contact where, where you get these little rest periods. It's there for the whole time. And RPE scores go through the roof with very light loading. And I, and I use that story of Justin Gatlin. You know, I told them when they were starting down there, start light, trust me. They have put it on, as you know, Joel, it feels very comfortable, right? So you first thing you think in weight training is heavy is good and you want to feel the weight. And I said, well, feel the weight after you run 100 meters, not before you've run it. And they put, uh, he doubled up the load because he thought it felt too light. He did one run, he came back, he starts stripping the weight off and saying, man, this is a lot heavier than you think. And we're only talking about half a kilo, you know? So that's, that, yeah, this was that, this was that, that part that we really got excited about that. We're now able to train rotational movement. And that is in air mechanics. And I don't think there's a sport in the world that's, that's not interested in that because coaching is most SNC is kind of ground contact. What's going in the ground. If we take a look at a basketball player, a basketball player goes to an SNC and almost most of the work the SNC is doing is what's happening at some point of contact, physical contact, ground contact. Everything the coach is doing is both what's happening. In, in the movement, what's happening mm -hmm. with the ball, what's happening as they go into air, how are they timing that? And so now, you know, and, and again, we're still just, you know, JC and I have talked a little bit about how we think rotational stress, rotational workload is really going to become rotational acceleration and speed in specific and overall movement is going to become a really new, exciting area to try and study, quantify and learn more about. But yeah, that was that was an aha moment for all of us. Yeah, that, just to and I think it, oh, sorry, it go ahead. really describes the difference 
and wear, wearable I, wearable really targets what's going on in air. And that then opens up a whole different conversation. Yeah, I, I think that's a universal point as well that I'd like to touch on is you you mentioned like the, the vertical force thing. And, and, you know, all forces are important in spring, vertical, horizontal, in their own unique way. But ultimately, it is interesting because there was that study in 2000 that Peter Wayne puts out. It's like, you know, vertical forces is the most important and more important than what the legs are doing in the air, repositioning in the air, I think was their term. Uh, but there was, there was people who critiqued that study because I think if you coach, you, and like you just said, you see that what is happening in the air is actually really important. And, and I can expand on this a little bit. I know when I was going through that particular study uh, about the time I was writing Speed Strength, I did, and I can't remember the exact specifics offhand, but I do remember having some reservations on what that study concluded. And you can look at like work that J.B. Marin did, this like determinants, I think it was something to do, the title may have been determinants of 100 meter dash performance. And one of the main determinants in acceleration is actually swing leg repositioning speed in that study. <laughs> and so it's like, how can you say that vertical force is all that matters when there's other studies that have been done by brilliant individuals who have actually coached track also that is saying something else? And that's, I think that's really important too. I look at research design and I, I also look at, well, have you coached, you know, and, and how are you setting this up and what are you looking at? And, you know, all that to say, I also look at sometimes the easy path is the reductionist path. It's very convenient for a lot of people if vertical force is all that matters because then, and I think that study sparked this wave of, oh, you want to sprint faster? Well, just squat. That's putting force in the ground. You know, it's like, no, it's a lot more than that. And I almost look at it in some way as um, like these parameters that define, you know, I don't know if you have a little like cross diagram or just different parameters, but what defines someone who operates elastically and who operates more muscularly? And, And like we see in the weight room all the time, people lift and their standing vertical jump or their counter movement jump goes up, but maybe their reactivity doesn't. Maybe they didn't actually get much faster. Maybe just their standing vertical went up. And I look at it almost on the level of things that happen in front of the body and that are more knee dominant, tend to be more muscular in nature. Things were, that happen behind the body, that's like pulling the, arrow ba- the bow back to load the body. And things that happen in the air, like even the external rotation of the legs before ground contact, that sets up an on-ramp to be bouncy. And you can't have the balance unless you set up for it in the air. There has, there is a setup. There's, and there's the connection of the upper body to the lower body and how the arms and hands control the legs in space. And I think that that, you know, it, it is interesting. It's like there's these studies that are well meaning, but in the same time, they can set us back when people like, oh yeah, well, it's just vertical force. So yeah, that's all I'm worried about. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it's way more than that. And honestly, I, I, you know, in addition to the study that JB Marin has done, and I'm sure others have done talking about swing leg repositioning and things like that, you know, we do have wearable resistance and <laughs> angular resistance training where we can prove it. We can prove that what happens in the air as a result of having weights that steer your limbs in the air or impact your limbs in the air. And, and I'd be curious too, I'm sure we maybe we'll get into ground contact force as a result as well. Because to me, uh, we've had on this podcast, uh, Darian Barr had an awesome show on rotation and the rotational nature of movement. And it's when you think of our body as like these angular levers in space that are going to create collisions, it changes everything versus, I don't know if you think otherwise, maybe uh, uh, one way would be to think of the body as an accordion that just goes up and down, you know, and produces force. It's, uh, there's so much, I mean, the body is amazing. And, and I think I've kind of gone off on a little rant of my own. <laughs> but I, when you were saying that, it, it does, um, Joe, it did make me think about that, that I do think that a lot of people may still look back to just that study 
And, you know, John, I'd be curious, you know, uh, from the research, you know, anything uh, you want to uh, add or tack on to that as well uh, with what happens in the air and, and limb repositioning and things like that of that nature. Can I just, JC, something to stimulate that because we use this a lot is I think that whole area around the kinetic energy, you know, how much load it takes to increase kinetic energy with weight or a squat versus how much load it takes to change kinetic energy of that rotating high speed system. Maybe that's something because... I still think the work you guys did in that area is almost mind-blowing. Yeah, a, a, a couple of things there. Wayne's research, you know, like, I, I think you put it really well, Joel, is the, the, all the forces are really, really important. And, and, you know, and for some people, some forces are more important than others, okay? And what they do on the ground is more important and what they do in the air for others is more important, you know? Uh, I think with... The, the wearable resistance is that we have a tool that can actually address most of those issues, those problems, okay? Uh, whether they be force problems, whether they be technical problems, uh, you know, it's a great coaching tool, as Joel, uh, Joel must probably allude to a little bit later in the, in the show. But, you know, we've got, if we've got a, a step length problem, we've always believed that the, the, the vest would be the tool to actually address that problem and get a little bit more vertical force into the uh, the person and therefore you know uh once you know you you get stronger with it your step length will be longer take your vest load off and then hope your step length is longer if we've got a a, a step frequency problem then we've got the best tool on earth you know uh, load your thigh load your ankle and you know yeah, you'll be slower for a little while but as you get stronger across the hip flexors or you know across the hip or the knee you know, you're going to actually get back to your previous step frequency, take the load off, hello, you're actually winding up your legs a little bit more, okay? So I'm in both camps. I think I think Joe said it before, it's the, it's the right tool at the right time for the right diagnosis, diagnosis. What Joe was alluding there to, though, you know, we've been to conferences where people just say 200 grams or 500 grams equal to strength training at 120 kg squat or 220 pound squat and we we've proved it on many occasions because it's 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 the kinetic energy of a mm -hmm. movement that really really counts for things and you actually if you look at that formula for kinetic energy is half mass times velocity squared okay so the actual mass part of the equation gets halved so if you have 100 kgs, that's going to get halved to 50, and then you're going to be moving that really slow. But the velocity part of it gets squared. And so we've done the maths on it where we've shown it like 120 kg squat. The kinetic energy around the hips is exactly the same as a 500-gram load being, being moved by a fairly good sprinter, not an elite sprinter. And that's I because see. moving a light load very, very quickly. And so, uh, yeah, it, that was another light bulb moment for us there where you actually, the, the kinetic energy involved in these movements, light loads can be effective. And that's why, you know, principally, the wearable resistance is a high-speed tool. That's, if we start moving these light loads really quickly, we are starting to produce some really significant kinetic energy. And that's why these athletes pull up and go, geez, that was a 35 40% harder than I you know thought it was going to be so sorry there's a lot of ideas in there but hopefully it answers one or two of your questions there Joel 
Yeah. You know, with that too, you know, you had mentioned, and it makes me think of the lever systems too, when we think about, all right, where you're squatting 130 kilos or something. Well, you're using a lot of first class levers to do it. You're using slower levers to accomplish that feat that your body has to. It can't use a third class lever the way it does in speed. And I think about, well, even just having something like, and Joe, you said it like, like ankle weights. I'm sure a lot of people, and yeah, can you run with ankle weights? Not well. Like that was one of the things I had first heard too, with like wearing ankle weights. That was one of my early introductions to a wearable resistance. I think it was like my parents had exercise ankle weights and maybe they aren't as popular. I feel like they used to be more popular. But the, um, you know, it's because you brought up, you brought up that angular element. And I do remember, even though they're not good for running biomechanics, like just strapping like a two pound ankle weight on, just going sprinting, that's way too much. But I remember seeing a study when I was in college. So this was you know, almost 20 years ago. Maybe it was right when I was out. But it actually was a study that somebody compared plyometrics. And, and, and I'll, let me caveat the plyometrics here because it's not ply, like depth jumps. It was like a, a group did plyos with or without ankle weights. And maybe they were like two pounds. But the plyo was like uh, stand in front of a, a bench and do like switch switch taps up and down on the bench. You know, like you're running in place and you tap your foot on the bench and be- like that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's not it's not actually trying to be that specific. It's just really working the hip flexors. And at the end of the research, they found that the ankle weight group actually did improve their sprint speed. I think it was their sprint speed. It may have been some sort of jump component too. There might have been a jump exercise. Now I want to dig this up. I love how this is jogging my brain because that was that was, I always love the little counterintuitive things. It's like, should you sprint with ankle weights? Probably not. It's going to mess up your form. Is there a way to use ankle weights that helps you? Yeah, yeah. there's research on this. And so, I, I, that's, I always love that. I always love my belief system being challenged too. I, I remember that's one of the things I found endearing about that particular study. And I'd like to go back and dig it up. But I do remember thinking, and maybe I went out and did that afterwards. I forget, but I, I could, I know for a fact, and in using like the wearable resistance, the exogen, that yeah, like you are going to stimulate your hip flexors more. You are using the leg, the hip as a third class lever, and there's a lot of angular momentum happening. And you're actually stimulating your hip probably like peak impulse of your hip flexor may very well be well beyond what you could do with a cable machine or something like that. And it's going to be more novel too than just sprinting with nothing because you've done that for your whole life. It's so yeah, anyways, I, I don't know if you've heard of that study, John, or you jog my memory with it though. I just found that one interesting. No, I haven't heard of it. No, so that was most edifying. I hope it exists. I now I'm like, did this? <laughs> maybe it was like a low key journal. I don't know. Maybe it was someone's thesis in my college, or no, I, it wasn't that. <laughs> I, I want to go find it. I'm, I'm going to search PubMed after this and, and see if I can dig it up and put it in the show notes. But yeah, I, I do. I do remember though. It's it's got to be out there. Yeah, you did mention a couple of concepts there too that were really interesting for us though too, and and a couple of the things that. Uh, around angular motion, and you mentioned angular momentum there, which I think is is a, a pretty important thing to understand too. So I think one of the things that we really unpacked through the research and then the application of that research was the this rotational inertia concept. And uh, proximal to distal loading for us was huge. You know, the formula for rotational inertia is MR squared. And along the way, you know, we thought just put more mass on, put more mass on the thigh, that type of thing, you know, that'll 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 do. But with that sort of light bulb moment, we found like just slipping that load further away mm. from the 
the hip axis of rotation, you know, 100, 200, you know, 100 millimetres, 200 millimetres, whatever, it had a really significant effect on the rotational inertia of the limb. And then once we started thinking about the calf sleeve and putting a load all the way down there, obviously it works the knee muscles across the knee and the hip, but then if you're thinking about how that works the whole leg, that is a lot of rotational inertia there uh, at the, uh, in and around the calf. So uh, I'm really, you know, what we did with the rotational inertia thing and, you know, because angular momentum is rotational inertia times limb velocity without too much sacrifice in limb velocity or, you know, angular velocity and just playing with playing around with that rotational inertia concept was, you know, like it was a, another... People understood rotational inertia, but in terms of limb loading and, and sprinting, I think we've taken that to a new level too. One of the I think what you said is people understood it, but now we have, have we understood practical application in it? That's a very different thing. Concept versus application. Yeah. Yeah. And it's huge. Like when we look at how rotational inertia across the science, it, it, it is huge in so many sports uh, to actually bring the, the applications into the wearable resistance and loading of wearable resistance because you know we've had we've always maintained there's three or four different ways to load with wearable resistance but most probably one of the most powerful ways of loading small changes in movement away from the axis of rotation can have significant overload effects on hip knee musculature so we've always erred on the side of caution when yeah with the wearable resistance loading knowing this concept around rotational inertia. One of the things that I think a lot of coaches go through this is that is especially you know, sports performance, physical performance, strength training, and especially strength training for me is learning to do more with less, like learning mm. to get more out of a particular single leg movement versus just the default being or more weight on the bar, for example, yeah. like learning to have more nuance, even in you could even say the way that you do reps with bilateral, like uh, you do oscillating reps, one and a half reps, find some other ways to increase the load that isn't just increasing. I mean, if you all you have is putting more weight on the bar, eventually you aren't going to be able to go anywhere else. <laughs> and you have to realize that. But I think that uh, idea or ideology of just simply being able to do more with less is so important. And so with that being said, and we've talked about it a lot already, but Tell me about the exogen wearable resistance, and then I'm sure we will have tons of applications to get from it. Look, I want to add something though, just on where we went. We, we, we you were you were finishing there with JC, and again, I, I was just mentioning there on the chat with JC. So that's actually a, uh, one of the the guidelines in our use. And if anybody wants to get a good handle on use, one from a safety perspective, and two how to get started, go out and check out my, the, the, the stuff we have online on YouTube. You can find it on the website. But one of the things you'll see is we recommend, and, and this is critical, we, the first load progression we recommend is you move the load from a proximal position on the segment to a distal position. And JC and the guys had quantified that research. And I had already started providing that as a guideline because we were experiencing that. And I think anybody who has basic lever understanding gets it. You know, if your load's here, your load's here, it's going to be harder, whatever that means in terms of your sport, but you know it's harder. And then I remember JC popped up and he said, Joe, you got to look at this slide, man. We just did the numbers. And they looked at thigh loading on our short. So you have a, a load right up high by the hip, literally almost just outside the groin, right? Right near the rotating joint. 
what we would call the proximal load on the thigh or the upper shank. And then they were moving it down mid thigh and then lower thigh or what we call distal thigh right above the knee. And they were only looking at 200 to 1,000 grams, you know, a few ounces up to a pound or two. And when you just moving that weight from the hip to the knee at the end result of those ranges was increasing rotational workload by 25%. And I remember still JC saying, think of having to put 25% more weight on your squat bar. You know, and, and when you conceptualize it or you, you think about it in terms of what we think from a traditional risk, you just think, why would you need to have more weight? You know, and so what, and, and JC, maybe you want to comment a little bit more on that, but I just think that was the proof we needed to, to validate this process of loading. That is, we always say start proximally. The load's a lot heavier than you think. First progression is start moving that weight down the joint. You're going to feel it. And once they can handle and maintain movement quality and targeted speeds or motions, doesn't matter whether it's swimming or sprinting, whatever it might be, then you know the body's ready for a weight progression, an actual increase in load. Yeah, like the only thing I need to add to that, it's a lot of people have problems, but you know, Joe, we've been to conferences and you know, there's when you actually do the kinetic energy and say this has got the same kinetic energy as a uh, a 100 kg squat but i always say this is first principle of physics guys you know you just cannot argue with the maths here so like and over the years you know nobody has so like it's yeah it's i i think you know again just again i, I always knew those concepts of rotational inertia but actually bringing them into bringing them home into a, a product a piece of technology like exogen is been one of the most satisfying things I've done over my research career, to be quite quite honest. But then, Joel, just to to let the use uh, the the listener know, and ourselves here, as I mentioned before, I was on call this morning with one of the elite groups, our star athletics groups, and I was on call with Dennis Mitchell this morning. And you know, we talk always. We're we're constantly planning the next phases and cycles. And they just came back from Miramar Open, of course, had incredible results. Now there's going to be a bit of unloading period. And so we're not talking about this anymore. This is what we're doing. So the unloading principles for this week with the team on the on the track is going to be, they're going to be no distal loading. So generally, they do a lot of work with the shorts and the calves. They're, they're so acclimatized to the kit. But we're taking away distal loading through the lower shank. We're going to be loading only on the upper shorts. And we're only going to be loading posterior, where the main prime movers are moving. We're not taxing recovery muscles. We're not taxing distally. And that's a change in workload. So it's, and we're not changing the amount of weight, but we're changing where it is on the body because where it is on the body is more important than the amount of load. And so we're, we're adjusting load position to give the athletes a, uh, a lesser training stimulus. And so, the, and these are the things we're applying this now at the highest level of sport on the planet. And we learned that through the science and, of course, the applied part. But, you know, Dennis, the team got it. He was like, sounds good. Makes sense. Let's do it like that. Let's give the athletes a break. Uh, but we need to keep the stimulus there. And this is the wonderful thing about it is we have so many different options now than just saying more or less weight. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit, too, about, like, the different uh, the different weight loads that go with the exogen unit. So, obviously, there's ankle weights that are... <laughs> like a pound, two pounds, five pounds, you mm. know, and 
not i mean the specificity is probably limited if you wanted to be explosive with ankle weights of doing like i do think like the bench like the bench hop type drill is probably about as good as you're going to get with that type of thing you get a nice specific overload um but the weights for exogen are substantially less i mean 100 200 grams like tell me about those and tell me about a little bit about the way that they're shaped too um just because I, that is profoundly interesting to me as well. Just I, I, I look at them. I'm like, this is like my deltoid muscle, you know, like, how did you come up with that? Yeah. Idea? You know, it, it's, and it, and it also adds some, just, just like the idea of it's like, this is part of my body almost because the feeling it registers isn't like a weight vest where it's like this thing that's clunking around outside of you. It almost like your nervous system almost treats it more as part of the limb. If that makes sense. I'm sure you, you, you've, probably heard people say or you have your own thoughts on that i'm just curious what your take is on that and then um yeah just like the weight the lightness of the weights and and what they're available in um versus like you know an ankle weight or a weight vest or something like that yeah and that was a big part of the whole journey you know i can't say the cool thing is we were learning while we were creating it and people always beat me up saying joe get it out to market you know there's always that you got to be first you got to be fast but we were so involved in the learning process that we were fine tuning what we wanted to get out of the product before we wanted to just throw it on kit. And I got a feeling there's people out there that had started making things, but they just put out the first iteration and they stopped on the learning process. And this loading, the amount of load, uh, the challenge we had when I started was I started in SNC. So we always think more is better. Mm. And I couldn't get enough load on the kit because of we knew it had there was a balance between putting load on the body and not disrupting technique. And every time weight gets too heavy, the, you know the garment breaks down. You start to get issues that you had with like the ankle weight, the wrist weight, weight the weighted vest, etc. And everything I did, I was just like, man, I don't think this is going to work because people buy like twenty pound, forty pound weight vest. You know, we're only getting X amount of weight on this. It's just no one's going to buy into it until we started putting it on athletes. And you know, in my experience, thankfully and I've had the honor of working with many of the best athletes in the world. And we were putting it on Olympic champions and people that have very high level of body movement awareness. And none of them were choosing heavier weight. And so that really tuned us in. They were saying, no, like every time I went to load them, they were taking weight off. And they were saying, I don't want this to be the gym. This is awesome. But let me put the right weight for my sport move, whether it's an on-court movement or a track movement. And all of a sudden, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe lightweight means something here. And so our weight ranges now range from 50 grams, 100 grams, 200, and 300 grams. And for very specific reasons, two of them are being when you overload too much, the actual system breaks down. We don't just want another weight that's bouncing and disrupting movement. And when you get over a single load in a single part of the body in any type of system that's around three, 400 grams, the next step up will start disrupting. So we stopped it at three. And then the 50 gram load is probably the most interesting. So that's from uh, for North America, for the US who understand ounces, that's two, four, eight, and 12 ounces. Those are our load ranges. And I remember we were going to drop the 50 gram load, the two ounce load. You think that's a chocolate bar, right? <laughs> and um, and I was going to drop it because it costs a lot of money to make a small load compared to a bigger load. And we thought no one's really going to use them. It's too light. And I remember one of the top spring coaches himself, a 400 meter Olympian, I was telling him about that. And he was like, Joe, no, 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 man. That load is the perfect load to coach awareness without affecting weight. 
And I was like, really? He goes, yeah. He said, sometimes I just put that load on the body so they can feel something mm. like almost like having my hand there while they're, while they're moving, but it's not heavy enough that it's making them work harder. And so again, that the journey was light is the new heavy. And this is, this was really like JC everywhere we go. Somebody's like still thinking traditionally heavy. That's what our mindset was around. But when a high body's moving at high speed with high technical, not, not just technical proficiency, but the athlete themselves is focused on a ball or an opponent or something in their environment. It doesn't take much to mess that up. And so we, we quickly realized, you know what? We're staying with this light mode. And then right now I can tell you, I consult for many of the most elite sport programs in the world with this from Paris St. Germain to those New Zealand rugby guys, athletics. None of them are choosing 20, 30 pounds of load. You know, most of the work we're doing is in the grams and ounce range. And even the progressions are always in grams and ounces. Our general progressions are four to eight ounces, maybe in a one to two week period. Now, in traditional resistance, that would be five to 10 pounds, but not for all the reasons you heard GC just talk about, you know, from the science side of what's going on with angular momentum, rotational stress, et cetera. Light is definitely the new heavy. And the other part that was the, the, the real wow moment for me was when we discovered the shape of the load. And you had asked about that. And this is a critical piece of the puzzle. Uh, and you talked about how the body, it seems to be uh, a different an extension of the body. That we do, that became the focus. In the design of the product, we were constantly challenging ourselves and finding ourselves getting stressed in the wrong areas to stay organic. And so even if you look at the product, the design construction lines, when we were actually creating the product and putting the lines on it, the first thing we were trying to do, we were trying to make cool lines so it looked like a Nike or tapered, you know, or for women, the line looks slimming, you know, all those design things that products need to do to sell. And I remember we were lost one night, it was midnight, and I was getting mad with the team. We're trying to find these lines and we're with the mannequins. And I just stopped and I said, stop, cancel, let's go home. This isn't working. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're moving away from the most important thing here, the body. And I literally went back and I opened up anatomy textbooks and I started looking and I was thinking, no, where's the answer here? I'm just the construction lines. And I was literally going through and I found the fascial system. And I looked at the cross fascial system of rotational zone at your thoracic lumbar, uh, thoracic spine, and then of course your lumbar umbilical region. And those are your rotation points of the body and everything builds from there. As soon as I saw that, I saw those lines, I went in with the team and I said, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but that's the construction lines we have to focus on because the body has to be the model. We did that, put it together. It made sense. And as soon as we put it on the body, all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I don't know why it's comfortable, but it's comfortable. And then the same thing happened with the loads. To be honest, we were just trying to make cool loads that made you look like Iron Man or a Transformer. <laughs> we were literally just trying to make something that would look good on social media. And we had hundreds of designs and we're trying to mix and match them. You know, what looked funky? Same thing. I stopped the team. I said, we're getting away from the design concept of this being part of the body. I literally went back to my book, started whipping through and I came across the muscle and I thought the load is like the muscle, you know, the, the, the garments, like your exoskeleton, your fascial system, and the load is like the muscle. And I said, I looked at penation and I thought that's the answer. That's what the load has to emulate. We didn't really know what it was going to do, but we knew that was the right road to go down. And so we made the load with a belly and an insertion point in that teardrop shape, which basically matched 
basic muscle physiology. And then we started putting on the body and we realized that was it. You know, now everything started to make sense. And as you saw with the belly, you have this part of the load that gravity, our centrifugal force acts on to create a moment or inertia or movement when you start rotating or moving. But you had a little bit of this tail, which gave the balance feeling so it didn't look and feel like a chunk of load that disrupted things. And I know that's a little bit long on that, but I think it's really important for people to understand we didn't try to just make a cooler, more expensive weight vest. We, we don't even call ours a vest. We have a weighted, we have our top. And the reason we don't call it a vest is we want to move away from that thinking. A lot of people say, oh, it's an expensive weight vest. I said, well, then you don't understand it. You don't understand loading on the body during movement because we can put weight and weighting on your chest, across your shoulders, through your scap, down along your transverse or in your front, distantly, approximately, internally, externally, none of them are the same. And so, and you know, and that was, like I said, we took years experimenting on this, trying it, coming back, finding those those pieces. And and I hope people can at least appreciate, like you said at the beginning, Joel, this thing only really makes sense when you put it on and you give it a try. And then all of a sudden everything's like, this is this is a lot different than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So that's the that's the long story on why the design ended up as it did. A little bit of luck, a little bit of science, a lot of sweat. Yeah. Yeah. I that's one of the the big things that I think really drew me to it. And and again, I I speaking more in principles, people listening, you know, I hope you buy the product. It's absolutely amazing. But if you don't, you know, that's fine too. I but the principle of just like so much technology now is things outside of the body. And things that tell you what the body did. Okay. Force, like force plates are great. They tell you what the body did or a velocity bar monitor tells you what you, the speed, but there's very little in the world of feeling, like genuinely like feeling what is happening. And I think I, part of the reason I appreciate that so much is because I was so heavy on the pure, um, quantitative, quantitative side for so long. Like it was only program exercises, max strength, max force, you know, and, and, I, I got, I did get athletes or helped athletes to achieve great results with those uh, programs, but some didn't get that. And I was always scratching my head, well, why didn't that work for that person? Or why did, for me, as I continued to train through my 20s into my 30s, eventually I just ran out of steam and was a shade of the athlete I was when I was in my early 20s at, the, at, at that point. And part of it is I had just taken force so far and I had never explored, well, why is my body doing any of these things? I was always just take whatever cues are popular, do those. And I never mm. felt anything. And I didn't, and I never really did until I met a Darien Barr. And then I started getting into some of the, the deeper uh, biomechanical levels. And I really, and he has a lot of sensory tools, like the different uh, like pipes that you hold or different uh, foot sensory type items. And that led to this cascade of, of really appreciating the feeling of what I was doing. And, and I've, done i actually just did a podcast where we talked about this like you can get too buried in the sensory if you do like feldenkrais and that's all you do you know that's not good mm. but if all you do is output and you never and you never feel then that you i don't think you'll reach your highest potential and i watch and, and with track and field so often i watch the elite athletes and sometimes they have techniques that we might call call an aberration you know a lot of like ro rotation or a foot dragging here or there and we think oh well why are they doing that? That's wrong or something. It's like, or, or what I yeah. think is I'm like, well, how did they come to do that? How did their body's intelligence 
find this? And yeah, that's what I'm always thinking. How did their inner intelligence find this? And they didn't find it because a coach told them to. They found it through in an internal feeling that they went with. This feels good. I'm going to go with this. This feels fast. And that's one of the things I like about versus a weight vest, which, you know, when you take it off, it's great you because know, <laughs> you get that potentiation. But something that you innately feel that also delivers output, that also from a physics perspective, overloads that angular momentum and can create incredible forces that the body has to deal with. And so, anyways, all that just being said, I just think that that is such a cool piece of it all that I, yeah, I just, I hope people as, as training moves on, gravitate more towards that felt, just like you said, when they put that on and they move with it, that felt really good. I just think we need more of that in general in our training space. And that's where we're going. And, and the term we use is the term I came up with to describe what exogen loading is like is internal mechanical loading, because essentially it's weight in and part of the body. And, and that took, and then again, this is the point when you, when you look at it and you think, if you think, oh, it's just weight on the body, I get weight on the body. So I understand what you're doing. But I'm thinking, okay, maybe you do, but hopefully today, like you said, it doesn't matter if people buy the product or not. What we want to do is get people to start thinking, where are we going? And I, and I always use this. Jay's heard me say it a thousand times. In 50 years, whatever we're talking about today, we're going to sound like a cave This is going to be as old as dirt. <laughs> and so I've always been interested, and I think you, Joel, obviously, and JC, we're interested, and that's why we're connected, in where we're going to go. And I'm telling you where we're going to go is exactly down this road we're in, whether it's with our product or not, but it's in better understanding and appreciation of movement and reconnecting with the organic aspect of why people compete and why people play sport. Why do athletes want to finish playing their sport? Because it feels good and they know the feeling of feeling good. And we have to, you have to ask yourself when you train, this is really important. If you're a young strength coach right now, Coming up in the field, and hopefully, if you're an older strength coach or somebody in the field and you still have an open mind, when you put something in, what falls out? And those natural athletes, like you said, we put a lot of training stimulus in, but nobody ever asks, Oh, we're doing all this. What's falling out the other side? What are they losing? And this is one, you know, I've got a, a, a series of papers I've developed in this area, but it relates back to the product and the mindset. And I, and I do think it's important to understand. This is why a lot of what I call the natural athlete reject a lot of what traditional SNC does because they're like, I understand movement. You don't. I know what's fast. So what the, 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 the performance coach needs to do then is say, all right, let me help you with your movement with a bit of better science and smartness, but not try to change it. I know tons of athletes that'll say the gym isn't helping. Uh, plyometrics aren't what I need. Not these drills that you're trying to teach me, these angles. I get it, coach, but they don't work for me. And they, and I've, at first we, re, I thought they were the combatant athlete, right? The lazy mm -hmm. one. But I realized they were rejecting it because they knew if I put this in, I'm going to lose something out here. And what I'm losing out here is more important than what you think you're putting in. And so this is, this is like I said, it goes back to something JC said as well. You just have to know the tool for the job with the person you're using at that time. Exogen's not going to replace everything else we did. But I think it finally rounds out the force velocity curve. And I know we've tried to take everything on the left side of the curve and jam it all the way down. You know, let's go heavy and traditional resistance, but move fast. I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. 
because the part that's missing at the bottom of the force velocity curve is the intuitive feeling of the athlete. And that's not expressed in the parameters of the curve, but it does play a role. And that's why, you know, the, the product I think really resonates when you're looking at things that relate to tweaking in the final aspects of your, of your program relating to movement. Just don't put those, don't put traditional tools in. There. That's that, that's a conversation I would love to end, you know, and, and carry forward, but it's just like exogen. I had a guy ask me the other day, well, how about body toning and, and, and weight and, and mass building? Can we use it for that? I'm like, no, 300 grams isn't going to add weight to your body. So don't move those tools up the curve and don't move the mm-hmm. other tools down. You know, keep them separate. Know the problem you're working on. Understand the person. Choose the right tool for the job. Yeah, 100%. I, you know, with um, the sprinting too, I, and I think we'll we'll start kind of rounding the things down for the day. But I, I, you know, you hadn't mentioned names, but I'm, I am, I mean, there's, I know there's a lot of really fast athletes um, that are using the, um, the the wearable resistance gear these days, and like JC, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, you know, it's it's been great talking to you guys. Um, it's been a great conversation. Uh, you know, I know we're running out of time and I'm sure there's a lot more we could chat about. And, you know, I hope for all the people listening, um, whether it's, um, it's definitely something that has been like, it's the feeling ultimately. It is that there's so much to feel and experiment with. And it's just been um, a really cool, pro- you know, JC, I, or I feel like I'm kind of like you, like I've, I've gone through a lot of the, the typical quantitative wearable is so much fun because there's so many options. There's literally like, a hundred different ways I could set it up for any given training day. And uh, you know, before we get out of here, do you guys have any, if you guys have any closing uh, thoughts, remarks, um, and you know, about anything we covered uh, and then we'll wrap up the show. I just want to yeah, play off one of uh, Joe's comments was, you know, like when we think about adaptation and big fan of mechano transduction, you know, the mechanical variables drive all adaptation. Mechanical variables will drive the cellular signaling, which will drive the tissue remodeling. And, you know, we have been very force-centric for years, okay? Three of the biggest drivers, three of the biggest mechanical variables that drive all adaptation are force, velocity, and length. And we've been very force-centric for many years. but. I think people need to understand that there is another mechanical variable, thus the force-velocity relationship of muscle, thus the length tension or the force-length relationship of muscles are huge relationships that drive adaptation. And if people can actually think about velocity in its own right being a huge driver of adaptation, we'll be going a long way to actually, you know, transforming or educating people there. Uh, it's this is a velocity centric stimulus that can drive a lot of adaptation. Take force out of the equation. Kinetic energy mm. doesn't get force in the equation. It's half mv squared. Angular momentum, you know, it's again inertia times, uh, you know, angular velocity. It's the, the velocity is a huge driver of adaptation, and we've got the, one of the best tools on the planet for that. So that's something that I would just leave leave you with. Yeah. How many, we've all worked with athletes. How many athletes or coaches walked into your office in the last 30 years and said, Joe, man, we just got to get slower. We're too fast. <laughs> it doesn't happen, right? 
And it doesn't matter what the sport, there's some aspect of speed you're working on. And, and that's, this product was made for that. I think two points I would like to make. When we do our level one course, and if you're interested in that, we'll be, you know, we're setting up now where we're setting up Vila USA there in Florida. Uh, we'll be on the ground full time after July, starting to run our program there. And Joel, I hope we connect much more with you on, on that. But we, we go through the history of where of traditional resistance. And, and I always believe that's important because most people don't even understand the tools in the box, never mind where they came from. And if we look at the tools in our training box, 90% of them were not created by sports people for athletes. They were created as a result of many other factors that most people don't understand. But we got stuck with them because somewhere, and it was largely around the 80s, that the word strength popped up in the Western culture as, oh, athletes need strength. And then somebody said, well, guess what? Over here where the guys do weight training, that's they get strong. Ah, let's go there. And we just ran with it. But, you know, a lot of those tools weren't. Exogen, and there are some 1080, was purpose-built. Exogen was purpose-built. These are sports people creating product for a sport outcome, a movement outcome. There wasn't something that we took from bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting, and said, oh, I'm going to try and hammer it in there. And that's why I go on Twitter and all these different accounts. And I listen to people talking about, you know, the deadlift was the squat and that. And I'm thinking, God, I, I get it. I went through that too. And, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s and conditioning, you're still learning. And that's, you, you, you're interested in that. I'm just beyond that now. And, and I think you're not going to get a lot of value from understanding that. And, but you still need to understand because those are base tools. It's like a carpenter's still main tool is still a hammer, right? Mm. Now, or, you know, a hammer gun. But be open to the mindset that there are tools now being developed that were literally first and foremost developed to target at movement. And exogen was developed for that purpose. And what you see is it more weight training is not just about more anymore. And this is the part that I like and I think is best. And that is that exogen is an empowering tool for the strength coach, the coach and the athlete to be in a whole new conversation. And my goal now I'm starting to realize is to empower strength coaches with an ability to solve problems that coaches have difficulty with. And here's the rub. Coaches, for the most part, do not understand periodized loading of weights. But almost all strength coaches do. That's a skill we've developed from traditional resistance. And so they know how to progress. They know what's too much. They know about movement quality, but it's all applied to general movements in a gym that unfortunately we try and jump over the transfer line too much. But that knowledge is the value you bring to your coach with exogen because the coach will never take the time to learn periodization. And all the coaches I work with are all like, Joe, I don't know when I should increase the weight or how much should I use? When should I unload? But strength coaches get that stuff because they understand resistance. So if you take the time to learn the tool, think light, start getting away from, you know, using left side curve tools to right side problems and be the coach's solution to knowing how to use the tool to solve movement problems. You are going to have value in that sport setting way beyond what you are right now. And I was down there with House of Athlete, one of our partners down in Florida. And he was some of the best guys in the business as well. And they, as soon as I got there, they threw me all the people's problems. First off, Division One quarterback, pro quarterbacks, uh, major league all-star, baseball hitter, all these guys they had problems with. 
And they said, Joe, we got a guy with this and we're working on this and this. What do you think? And I went in and said, okay, well, let's do this. And I just asked them at the end of that week with them, I said, so if I didn't show up with Exigen, how would you have solved these problems? And they said, well, we would have kind of kept doing what we're doing. And, and there's, there's that gap. And I said, you now have a tool that you can go in and movement solve. And you already have the skill set and periodization as a strength coach to know how to apply it. But just think light. You know, you still have unloading wings. You still progress lightly. You still need to keep movement quality. So I, what I love is this is empowering what I hope. If it's not going to be the old school guys who just want a bar, that's fine. But for the new young generation and JC, you guys just had that wonderful video with your some of your young AU, AUT masters and PhD students coming up. You know, these people weren't born in the gym either, right? They're open to using whatever tool works and they're highly savvy on the science of it. So I think if they, if we, where we're improving now is in communication and connection of all aspects around movement. And so I, I just think we've got a whole new conversation that's happening that I'm really excited to keep sharing with people. And, and the last point is, it's not what you think. Please go somewhere where somebody's got the product, put it on and, and feel it. Because the moment you feel it, Joel, and I think I would leave that last part to you is, you said that. When you feel it, all of it kind of just goes, oh, I get it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, all the training tools that, have, that we look at, barbells, uh, dumbbells, kettlebells, sleds, you know, you could name them all. You know, I think that I could definitely see in 20 years, and I'm excited to see in 20 years, how far that wearable resistance, all the things, like you said, all the ways that we have figured out to use it. I know we talked about some of them on the show today. Um, and then just how I think it also changes our mindset. I know we could talk about that as well. or continue, We talked about that a little bit, but I think the mentality that goes with it is also so beneficial. So um, thank you guys so much for being on the show today. I, I, we've had a great chat and I, I appreciate you guys taking the time from different corners of the earth and also different time zones. So um, I'll be heading to bed here soon, but I, you guys enjoy the rest of your days. <laughs> it was wonderful chatting with you. Thanks, Joel. Thanks Good so much, job. JC. It was a pleasure, my friend. Good day thanks for tuning in to another episode appreciate you being here the goal of this show first and foremost is education to discuss the role of rotational and angular momentum in building sports speed if you do want to take that rotational component to a high level then i would absolutely recommend checking out the exogen wearable resistance gear and you can grab 15% off your order there by heading to lilateam.com. That's L-I-L-A-Team.com. And then you can use the code JFS2023 at checkout. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.